And I think Jesus is saying it's hard for people with powerful idols in their life to quit worshiping that idol and come and bow the knee to King Jesus. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. And if you would, open in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. There are around 50 sovereign states, or 50 sovereign states in the world that would officially recognize themselves as kingdoms. And these include constitutional monarchies like England, or absolute monarchies, maybe like Saudi Arabia and other forms of kingdoms. Saturday, one week ago, if you happen to be watching TV, you could have watched the crowning of the newest king of England, King Charles, and um, with, uh, with chants of long, long live the king. But you may not realize or even think about often, uh, because we reside not in a kingdom, but we reside in a geopolitical country, these United States, is that there is one kingdom that is above every single kingdom. And I might add, it is above every geopolitical state as well. And uh, this kingdom is eternal. This kingdom is led by none other than our king, King Jesus, who is king of kings. Jesus inaugurated his kingdom when he came to our planet and took on an incarnation, took on our, our humanity. He inaugurated his kingdom and he has been inviting people ever since then to become a part of his kingdom. In Mark chapter one in verse 15, uh, Jesus or Mark 1 15, it says, this is Jesus preaching. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of Jesus is the kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about. It's the stone that came off the mountain. If you remember the dream of Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 2, the stone rolls down the mountain, crushes all the other kingdoms, and then fills the earth. Well, that's the kingdom of Jesus. This is the kingdom that Isaiah prophesied when he said that a son of David would be born. And his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And then he said this, and the dominion of his kingdom would be vast and its prosperity would never end. And he would establish it and sustain it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. This is the kingdom that Jesus uh, received from the Ancient of Days, which Daniel saw in a vision, which he records for us in Daniel chapter 7, where it says, Suddenly, one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven, and he approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Jesus' kingdom has begun. It's begun. He told the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. Jesus is our king. And he said that his kingdom would be like leaven that permeates the loaf of bread. And it would spread throughout the whole loaf of bread. He said that his kingdom would be like a mustard seed that would be the smallest of all seeds, but grow into this great tree in which the birds of the air would be able to to rest and, and roost. The point was that his kingdom was going to be different. And unlike a kingdom, that would start with a monumental event like some war or some huge decisive battle, the kingdom of Jesus had begun almost imperceptibly in the earth. And this is why up until the turn of the 20th century, many, many believers believe that the good news of Jesus' kingdom would overtake the world and usher in the return of Jesus 
So many of us who followed Jesus back then believed that the world would just continue and continue to submit to Jesus to the point that all the world belonged to him and Jesus would step out of heaven and come back and, and, and rule over, uh, over his kingdom. That's what everybody thought, but then there was World War I and then there was World War II and then there was all these other things that not too many people hold to that position uh, anymore. But it doesn't change the fact, it doesn't change the truth that Jesus is king over his kingdom and he reigns today in the hearts of his people. His people are salt and light. His people have a responsibility to transform this world in which we live. We are to bring his kingdom to every corner of the planet. And by that I don't just mean that we take the truth of Jesus to every corner of the planet. I mean we bring his ethic and we bring his kingdom to every corner of the planet so that we are transforming our world. And Jesus' justices and Jesus' perspective and will is changing the world everywhere. We are to pray and we are to work that the kingdom of God might become might come to earth it might be done on earth even as it is in heaven so this morning I believe the passages that we're going to look at in Mark talk about how one becomes a part of of this kingdom and so today that's what I'm going to talk about using Mark as our text I am going to share with you at least two major things that I believe Jesus says about entering into his kingdom. Now there's more. There's more here as you'll see. But there's two big ideas that to become a part of Jesus' kingdom, you need to embrace these two truths. All right? So there's two events, two truths that we're going to look at, but there's a bunch of other stuff as well. So if you have your Bibles, we're at Mark chapter 10, verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus in order that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the children of God, excuse me, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Then he says this, Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, that would be the little children, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. Jesus wants you to be a part of his kingdom, everyone. He's been inviting you from the very beginning to be a part of his kingdom. He wants you to be there, okay? He's inviting you today to be a part of his kingdom. Come unto me, all you who are who labor and are heavy laden. I want you to be a part of my kingdom, he says. And But here he tells us, and this is the main first highlight that I want you to see. If you don't receive his kingdom like a little child, you will never enter it. If you don't receive it, if you don't come to it like a little child, you will never enter it. So what did Jesus mean by that? Well, as I try to answer that, let's go back to the beginning of this. Okay, parents are bringing their little children to Jesus, and the disciples are stopping them. Why are they bringing their children to Jesus? It doesn't tell us. Maybe some of them are sick, and they want Jesus to lay hands on them and heal them. You know, But I think most likely, based on what happens at, at verse 16, they just want Jesus to hold their children in his arms and, and bless them. But the disciples are rebuking them for that. They're, they're scolding them, if you would, for bringing their little children to Jesus. Why are you bothering Jesus with your children seems to be the idea. It's kind of incredible that they would do this because just in chapter 9 of Mark, a few verses earlier, uh, Jesus tells his disciples this in verse 37. In all fairness to them, maybe it was a long time, maybe it wasn't just a few days ago or whatever. Maybe it was a long time ago, but in verse 37, Jesus has taken a little child in his arms and he says this, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name, welcomes Welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. I mean, it is almost incredulous, isn't it, that they would not let these little children come to Jesus. Now, they're not doing it, they're sending them away. And when Jesus finds out, 
In the text, it says he's indignant. <laughs> now, i got to tell you, I'll be honest, I didn't know what indignant meant exactly, so I looked it up. In prayer meeting this morning, as we read this text, somebody says, what does indignant mean? And I said, yeah, I'm with you. I had to look it up. It means that Jesus was angry. He was aggravated. He was annoyed by the fact that they were not letting the children come to him. And he says, let these little children come to me. And then he says this, my kingdom belongs to such as these. My kingdom belongs to such as these. Now I'm going to tell you what I think that means. And, and some of you are not going to agree with me. I feel pretty certain because this is not something we all agree on as believers, all right? But, um, but I want to tell you what I think Jesus means. When he says, my kingdom belongs to such as these, I don't think he's speaking metaphorically. I don't think he's using the children as a metaphor for something else in that case. I don't think he's speaking symbolically. I don't think he's saying these children represent something else. I think he's literally saying, my kingdom belongs to such as these. My kingdom belongs to children. And these children represent children from all over. My kingdom, children belong to my kingdom. He's using the children in front of him to say of children everywhere, they are part of my kingdom. Now, some Bible students, maybe I should say many Bible students, believe that the Bible teaches that when, when Adam sinned against God, and became guilty, that God assigns Adam's guilt to every conceived child. So when a child is conceived, they are immediately conceived with Adam's guilt upon them, so that the, the penalty of Adam's sin is on every conceived child in the womb, every little child, one, two, three, four, whatever age, uh, the guilt of Adam has been assigned to them. And so they are now under the penalty of, of death, hell, eternal separation from God. By the mid-third century, Christians were baptizing infants. They were baptizing infants as initiation into the church. Okay, but they say by 350, really, believers' baptism had all but disappeared, and everybody was baptized as a child. And they were being baptized as a child as an initiation into the church. You'll remember that when God instituted the first covenant, he made a first covenant with Israel. Part of the sign of the covenant was you are to circumcise all your infants, because they're part of the covenant. And so people, I think, imagine they sort of reasoned, well, if in the first covenant you circumcise your children as a sign that they were part of that, we should baptize children to say that they're part of the covenant like their parents were. And so by 350, people were baptizing infants as an initiation, as a statement of being a part of the church because their parents were a part of the church. But as this idea began to grow, that, that Adam's guilt had been assigned to every conceived child, so that every conceived child is guilty of Adam's sin and Adam's guilt, it, it sort of kind of morphed that baptism now became the removal of that guilt of Adam. How do we remove Adam's guilt? If my child dies at one month, at one year, if my child dies, how, how do I remove their guilt? And so baptism began to morph into this idea of this is how we remove that child's guilt by baptizing them. And so we would baptize them to remove Adam's uh, initial guilt. And that was beginning to really take up steam. And I don't want to get too far off in the weeds. I have a point to this. I hope you're tracking with me because it's important. Uh, I want to clearly... Uh, so, so that's how it came, it came about. But uh, Augustine, who were Augustine, who was probably the premier Western theologian of his day, lived around 400 and I think he died around 450. But he was the one who biblically developed this idea that baptism would remove Adam's guilt that had been placed uh, upon these children. And so baptism became that. Uh, Augustine or Augustine, he, he normalized that in the Western church, made it the majority view. 
And so for generations after that, people baptized children so that they could remove Adam's guilt. Because children were guilty before God, and they were guilty of Adam's sin, and they were sinners the moment they came out of the womb uh, under the condemnation of hell. And... um, and so Augustine kind of uh, prioritized that. I, I don't want to get too off, far off in the weeds here, but I want you to know that I don't agree with Augustine. I, I don't believe that God placed Adam's guilt on a newly conceived child. In some way, I do know that Adam's sin affected all of us. The Bible says in, in Romans chapter 5, and a lot of this comes from Romans chapter 5, but in Romans chapter 5 it, it says that Death came upon all of us because of Adam. So death definitely is a, is a consequence of Adam's sin. And, and I don't discard in my understanding that somehow Adam's sin has, has broken me in some way. That, that I have a propensity towards sin and, and that I left to myself, I will sin and you will sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? I think somehow Adam's failure affected that, but I do not believe that the Bible says that Adam's guilt has been placed on every child when they're conceived or when they're, when they're young. The Bible does speak of an age of accountability. In, uh, when, when Israel was um, in the desert, for those of you that may not know the story, but Israel's in the desert and God is taking them to the promised land and the people reject God. They rebel against God. And God says, every single one of you is going to die in this desert. You're not going to get to go into the promised land. He said, however... Those who are young, who have not reached the age of accountability, I will let them go into the promised land. And I think the age of accountability, if I remember correctly, might have been 20 years of, of age. So it was, an, it, was an older, it was an older age. In Romans chapter 1, and again, this is Jimmy's understanding of Romans 1. Not, not all would agree with me. Many would disagree with me. But in Romans chapter 1, I believe verses 16 through 20 tell us that we can respond in faith to what God is working in our lives. But verse 20 and following talks about people who have suppressed the truth. So there comes a time where people can, they, they respond to what God's doing in their heart and they either suppress it or they respond to it in, in faith. I believe what Jesus is saying in this text is that little children everywhere from the very beginning belong to his kingdom and they're in his kingdom. And until there comes a time and a place where they respond with their conscious rebellion against his kingdom, until that point, I think Jesus is saying children everywhere are a part of my kingdom. Then he says, if you don't receive a kingdom, my kingdom, like a little child, you will never enter it. Now, this is, this is the main point I'm trying to get at. And here he's not talking to children. Here he's talking to adults, and he's using children as a metaphor. He's using them in some way to symbolize something else. What does he mean when he says, unless you become like one of these little children that I said, just said, or my kingdom is about them, Unless you become light, what does he mean? Now, there's various thoughts to what Jesus meant, but I'm just going to give you mine. Mine is that those children are an illustration of God's grace. Those children are an illustration of God's graciousness towards them. And Jesus is saying, unless you come to me as a little child, dependent upon my grace, looking to me, not not trying to barter with me, not trying to earn your way in, not trying to somehow by your own righteousness achieve my kingdom, unless you come like a little child, with nothing. Because see, children didn't have any power. They didn't have any importance. They didn't have anything to offer. And yet they came to Jesus for his grace. I think Jesus is saying, unless we come to him in the same way, not depending on our own power or skills or gifts or abilities, then we will miss his kingdom. If we come on our own merit, if we come on our own attempts to try to earn his grace or earn his kingdom, you will not enter his kingdom. You must come like a little child. 
In the Hebrews passage on faith, where it talks about this is how we please God by faith, and he rewards those, it says, who seek him. He doesn't reward those who barter with him. He doesn't reward those who try to bribe him. He doesn't reward those who try to impress him. He rewards those who seek him. Little children are perfect examples of how God's grace and mercy work. If if we can't do anything by our merit to buy our way into the kingdom, we have to come as helpless and dependent children, saying, God, have mercy on me. I come to you. I want to be a part of your kingdom by your grace. If we come that way, we can be a part of his kingdom. But if you come any other way, trying to earn your way in, uh, muscle your way in, work your way in, then you will not be allowed in. And to illustrate his love for children, Jesus ends up by taking the little children in his arms and blessing him. I don't know if you've ever seen a man of power in our world bless little children, but it's 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 always neat, I think, to see men of power take little children in their arms and be tender with them. Well, that day his disciples saw that. His disciples saw the king of kings take little children in his arms and be tender with them. Now, here's my two applicational thoughts from uh, from this idea that Jesus loves children and that his kingdom is made up of children everywhere until they come to a place where they reject him and turn against him and suppress the truth that he's put in their hearts. Here's my two applicational thoughts for us. As a church family, we should prioritize children. We should prioritize children because Jesus loves children. And I want to say this in my notes. I am grateful to Jessica and Jennifer and all of you who make our ATF midweek kids program so good. You know what I'm finding more and more of? More and more church families, they're dismissing their children's programs. You know why they're dismissing their children's programs? Because number one, it's too hard to compete with culture. Because culture's just got everything for our children. Sports, namely, right? But there's all kinds. There's dance. There's you name it. There's all kinds of things for our children. And churches, and more and more, they're jettisoning their children's programs because they can't compete with culture and because it's too hard to find workers. We're too busy. We're too selfish. We're too got our own stuff going on that we can't help out with our children's program. I'm so grateful for all of you that help out on Wednesday. I'm so grateful to all of you who teach our children on Sunday morning. Why? Because we as a church should prioritize children. And I'm grateful for every one of you who teaches them on Sunday morning in Sunday school. And then you, you, you give us nursery and children's church for our children. I think there was a time, Jenny, when I thought that... Um, that VBS should probably go by the way, like, you know, the way of past things in the past, programs in the past. We don't need VBS anymore. Again, we're competing with so much. Or, or maybe not VBS or just even a summer program. But I want you to know I've repented. I think I was wrong. I think I was wrong. I think our children's summer program is really important. Why? Because we should invest in our children. So I'm thankful for Jenny and all of you who work the VBS program every year to influence our children. And don't misunderstand, it is stressful. Little children are stressful. I mean, I, I went to Bush Gardens on Saturday with four, five of my under four grands. And my son and his wife, who are here with me today, which I'm grateful for, they went and rode the roller coaster for an hour and a half. And so Anne and I had them, all five of them, for an hour and a half. And I want you to know that was the most stressful hour and a half of my life in a long time. I was talking to my uh, cardiologist and my friend, and I said, man, I think I need a stress test. And uh, so I just want you to know, because you're listening, I had my stress test on Saturday, and I passed. I I didn't die. I'm still here. So I am not trying to say that us prioritizing our children isn't hard. I get it, everyone. I get it, you know. But the application of Jesus loving little children and saying, my kingdom is made up of like these, right? We need to love these children. We need to prioritize them. And here's my second one. As a church family, we should disciple children. Man, I have shared these statistics with you, but I'm going to do it again just in case you've missed it. 
86% of people who say they follow Jesus said they began to follow Jesus when they were 14 years or younger. So what that means, I'm not saying that 86% of 14-year-olds and youngers who say they begin to follow Jesus are going to continue to follow Jesus. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that when they interview people at 10, I mean at 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 80, and say, when did you begin to follow Jesus? 86% of people say, before I was 14 years old. You go up to 30 and you ask, or under 30, you add 10 more percent. So by 30, 96% of people who say they follow Jesus began to follow him before they were 30 years of age. 86% before they were 14 years of age. Only 4% of people said, I began to follow Jesus after I was 30 years old. Now folks, listen, that ought to tell us something. It ought to tell every one of you hearing this something. So why is that, do you think? Why is it that 96% of people follow Jesus by 30, 86% by 14? Why do you think that is? Well, I'm going to tell you what I think it is. I think it's because the older we get, we harden our hearts, and we harden our hearts, and we harden our hearts against the Lord. And, 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 you know, by the time we're 40 or 50 or 60, it is our hearts. We have heart. They're not hard from birth. They're not hard right out the womb. In fact, I think most children are open to God. Most children don't have any problem believing that there's a God. Why is that? Because, because God's put it in their hearts. Why do they reject God when they're 50, 60? It's because they've hardened their hearts year after year after year. Children are tender and open to the Lord. And so therefore, we should focus our discipling, our discipling prowess on these little ones. And that's why all these ministries to children are so, so important. We need to disciple our youth. Our youth are older children. Our youth are young adults. They're kind of the in-betweeners, right? So older Christians, we need to be teaching them and mentoring them and encouraging them. We need you older people to not check out on us because you're in retirement age or because you've done your bit with the children. It takes all of us to, to raise our children to follow Jesus all the way to the end. And as long as you have breath in you, you should be loving children because Jesus loved children. We need to teach them why we know Jesus is king. We need to teach them the evidence for our faith. We need to help them think deeply about Jesus so when the atheist and the agnostic and the secularist comes along and seeks to knock the crutches up from under their faith, man, they know how to respond. And they are strong, and they don't let the atheists knock their crutches out, or what the atheists might consider to be their crutches out from under, because they don't have crutches. They already know Jesus, and they know why they have believed in him. And parents, this is our job as a church, but this is much more importantly your job as parents. It begins with you. And dads, I want to say to you, it is your job to disciple your children. It is your job, dads, to teach your children to love God. It's your job, dads, to show your children how to love God and to follow God. Dads, you should teach them to pray. And you know how you teach them to pray? By praying in front of them. You know how you teach them to pray? Because you pray with them. You need to do that. Moms, listen, I'm not leaving you out. You're already doing so much of this. But, but you need to do everything I just said to dads. You need to be doing that as well. It's our job, parents, to teach our children to love and to follow Jesus. So Jesus, you know, Jesus' church is kid-friendly, right? Those of you that are part of our family, is Jesus' church kid-friendly? All right, here's what that means. Fingers on the walls. Little children running their fingers down the walls, right? And, and scuffing up the walls and making them dark. It means little children spilling their food on our carpet. It means little children breaking stuff because they're little children and in their childishness, they do that. Or it means them destroying the nursery. We got too many toys in the nursery. 
I actually worked in nursery some, you know? And so when I do, I mean, it's like, oh my goodness, how do y'all mess it up so bad? Toys from one end to the other, right? That, I mean, it's, it's messy, but, but Jesus' church is kid-friendly because the kingdom of God belongs to them. I think, I think Jesus is saying, my kingdom is filled with children who, uh, who just have yet to come to a place where they've entered into rebellion and, and separation from God. That's, that's Jimmy's thought. Number two. Number two. I want to highlight one other thing about entering into the kingdom of God, and, and it's this. It is hard for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. You just got to say, man, if you don't come like a little child, you're not coming in. And then in this next little piece, right, we learn that if you're rich, it's really, really hard to enter his kingdom. Let's read it, verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt down before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him. Man, I love that word. I love that sentence. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. And Jesus looked and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Now, if you're following along with this, or if you've been following Jesus any amount of time, you 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 know this story. You've heard it before. This this rich ruler, obviously a very moral man, a man who was seeking to live by the first covenant, he came up to Jesus and he said, "What must I do to have eternal life?" And uh, and he calls him good teacher. And Jesus immediately says, "Why are you calling me good? There's only one good God, right? Why are you calling me good?" He just leaves that there. I think he's. I think he's asking him to look at the implications of his words. But he says to the man, you know what the covenant says, keep these commandments. And the man says, well, I've kept all of those commandments. And it says Jesus loved him and looked at him and said, well, then here, do this. You lack one thing. Go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And of course, you know the story. The guy went away grieving. He went away sad in his heart. I think the implication is I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Why? Because he was very wealthy. He had lots of possessions, and he wasn't willing to give them to the poor and follow Jesus. Now, Jesus then says to his disciples, after the young man's gone away, he says, let me tell you something. It is nearly impossible for a rich person to be saved. And they're like, what? He repeats it. Listen to me. It's harder for the camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich person to be saved and to enter my kingdom. It's, it's harder than that. And you know, the, you know, I know you've heard these stories, especially if you've been, like I said, following Jesus for many years. You've heard the story about the camel having to go through the, eye, the gate of the eye of the needle in the wall. right? Well, there's actually no historical evidence for that. That just somebody said that along in history and everybody picked up on it. Sounds good, right? It is, it's a great illustration. Maybe that's what Jesus meant. Maybe Jesus just means to be hyperbolic and say, you know, just like a camel can't go through the eye of a needle, a rich man can't get into heaven. Neither can a... Uh, uh, neither can a poor man get into heaven on his own because the disciples then say, well, man, how can anybody be saved then? Because they thought riches meant God, God was on your side. I mean, you, you had kind of God in your pocket, right? If you were rich, he was blessing you. And, um, and Jesus says to them, they say, well, how can anybody be saved if the rich man can't be saved? And Jesus said, well, with, with us, with man, it is impossible. 
But with God, all things are possible. Now here's, here's the main point, I think, of this story that I want us to see. It is super hard for people with wealth to enter into Jesus' kingdom. So why is that? Why, what did Jesus mean? Why, why did he say that? And again, he doesn't clarify. He doesn't specifically tell us what that, what he means by that. So I have a suggestion. And, and here's what I, th- here's why I think he said it's hard for the rich to, to enter his kingdom because money or riches is a very powerful idol. And I think Jesus is saying it's hard for people with powerful idols in their life to quit worshiping that idol and begin and come and bow the knee to King Jesus. Why did Jesus tell this guy to sell everything? Because he didn't tell anybody else that I know of. There's no recorded story in Scripture where Jesus ever told someone else to sell everything he had and and come and and follow him. So why did he tell this guy? Well, it's obvious he knew that this guy loved his money more than he loved God. And so he said to him, if you want to enter God's kingdom, you got to love God more than money. So get rid of your money and come to the kingdom and come follow me. And of course, the man wouldn't do it. Jesus told us at other times similar things. He told us you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is a word for riches. He told us, Jesus, in his, in, when he was here, he said, you can't serve two masters since either you will hate one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. Then clearly, he says, you cannot serve God and, and money. You cannot serve both of them. I think as Western Christians, this idol of money and mammon should scare us. Listen to me carefully. I think this should scare all of us. You know why? Because we are very, very rich. You see see what riches did for people? It it kind of removes your need for God. It sort of it sort of takes away your need for God, right? Your your daily bread, you know, modern health, you know, medicines and stuff like that. So, you know, this should really scare us because our riches can become an impediment to our coming to the kingdom. Jesus is saying it's very hard for the rich to enter his kingdom. Here's a question for us. And so I want you to imagine with me for a moment that Jesus makes a physical appearance here with us. Because by the way, Jesus is a physical being in in heaven. He has a new glorified body like the ones that we will have. He comes and Jesus makes, he's here by his spirit, but he makes a physical appearance here. And he goes up to each one of you, one by one, and he says, I want you to sell that beautiful house that you have. And I want you to go down to the uh, low uh, apartment district in wherever you live, and I want you to take an apartment in that district. I want you to use most of your money to care for your, your fellow folks in that apartment, and I want you to be a light in that apartment complex. How would that make you feel? And I know we, we're all saying, we're all saying, oh man, if Jesus came and told me to do that face to face, I'd I'd run and do it, right? I just, I just, you know, I'm not sure what my point in that was. My point was just, I, I think it's really easy for us to say things, but I think it's a whole lot harder if Jesus told us to do what He told this rich man to do. If He told us to get rid of our lives of ease. And, and, and live difficult. I'm not even talking about going to the world. I'm talking about just within our own context, not living this great life of ease and, and, and taking a harder road for his kingdom. Would we be willing to do it? If we're not, then there's, there's an idol in our life. I think the point is, Jesus is saying this, to enter my kingdom, you have to own me as your king. And you have to let go of idols and rivals. We're to love Jesus above everything and everyone else in our lives with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our might. And it's really hard to love God like that when we love money. The first commandment in the, um, in the first, in the first covenant, you remember it is, I am the Lord your God. Do not have any other gods beside me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in heaven above on, 
uh, or above, above or on the earth below, in the waters underneath, this, underneath the earth. Do not bow in worship to them. Do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And then he goes on. And they made, they made gods out of wood, stone, and precious metals, and they worship those worthless things. We're too sophisticated to worship them anymore, aren't we? We're not going to worship any material thing that we make. We're too sophisticated for that. But we make idols out of other things. We make idols and gods out of our desires. Desires for pleasure and desires for power and desires for passion and desires for security. And I think what Jesus is saying is here, if we worship these things, it's really, really hard to enter his kingdom because you know what you have to do? You have to renounce the idols and you need to turn to Jesus. And uh, we don't worship money as an, uh, as an object. We worship money as a means to these other idols in our life. Do you agree with that? We don't worship money as an object. We worship money as a means to these other idols. And so the money gives us security and we worship the the, the idol of security, or we worship the idol of passion, you know, or we worship the idol of, of pleasure, whatever, whatever it might be. And Jesus says, you've got to renounce your idols to follow me. And then he, he says to all of us, I think, it's impossible for any of us to be saved apart from the work of our loving God. Without, with man, it is impossible for us to enter his kingdom. With, without, without God, it's impossible for us to be saved. And this kind of brings us full circle to what we were talking about at the beginning. It is impossible for you and me to save ourselves from the penalty of our sin, from the death, from the eternal separation from God and all that we love. It is impossible for us to save ourselves from that. But I do not believe it is impossible for us to see our gracious and loving God and say, Lord, I cannot save myself, but would you save me? God, I cannot, I cannot earn save myself, God, but God, would you have mercy on me and would you save me? It may be impossible for the alcoholic to free herself from the bonds of alcohol, but it's not impossible for her to see her condition and her need and call out to others for help. Don't equate your inability to save yourself with an inability to respond to God's grace in the good news of King Jesus. They are not the same. And the event at hand continues. Peter says, to Jesus, he says in verse twenty-eight, "Look, we've left everything that follow and, and followed you." And uh, you know, I, I don't think I'd ever noticed this before. I think it's probably true. Peter's statement is probably motivated by what Jesus just said to the young ruler. Remember what he said to them: "Hey, leave everything, come and follow me, and you'll have treasures in heaven." So Peter's question may have been motivated by what he just heard Jesus say to that guy. And he may be saying, Lord, we left everything, you know, we left everything to follow you. What about, uh, what about us? Matthew's gospel actually says, he asked, what about us, right? Verse 29. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, who will not receive a hundred times more. Now at this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children and fields with persecution and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. What does Jesus mean by this? I, I think he means that no one surrenders and, and gives up anything to follow Jesus, that you don't get a hundredfold. And he says, you get it now. You get it now. How do I get it now? If I, How does the rich young ruler get rid of everything that he has and, and he has a hundredfold now? Because, because he becomes a part of a family. And what's all of ours is supposed to be all of ours. We're supposed to take care of each other. We're supposed to use our surpluses to meet each other's needs. So, so the brother, so the Muslim brother who follows Jesus and forfeits his earthly family, you know what he gets? He gets hundreds of brothers and sisters all around the world who are his family. He gets mothers and fathers. How about the young American teenager who begins to follow Jesus and has 
has parents who, you know, they disown him or disown her because she's now following Jesus. What about that young man or that young girl? Well, they get, they get mothers and fathers all over the world who are going to come alongside them and, and be their mother and be their father. Remember when, when, when Jesus was, his brothers and sisters came to him and, and they said, hey, your brothers and sisters are outside, your mom's outside. Remember what Jesus said? He said, who's my mother? Who's my brothers? Who are my sisters? You are. You who do the will of my father. So you know what? We get a kingdom now, and we get, we get brothers and sisters now. We get everything we surrender to the kingdom, we get back in each other. And then, then he says this, he's not mentioned anything, Jesus says, but you get it with persecutions. Yeah, man, it's going to be really hard. There's a lot of difficulties. Um, but then he says, but then you get this. And in my opinion, it's, it's the ultimate blessing. He says, in the age to come, you will be given eternal life. I do see that there are many blessings from following Jesus now. There's joy, there's peace, there's uh Love, there's all the gifts of the Spirit, but money and comfort and pleasure and ease and security and power, they're not part of it. Now you may have some of those, and if you have some of those, be careful, because they can be impediments to you entering the kingdom. All right? But you might have some of those blessings now. But Jesus gives us all these blessings, and then he says, and in the age to come, you get to be with me forever and ever and ever. Jesus ends with this in verse 31, but many who are first will be the last and the last will be first. And in this context, I think he means this. Everyone who is sacrificed in this life may be last when it comes in this life, in this world, may be last in power, may be last in pleasure structures, may be last in all the things that the world says we ought to live for. He says, but in the kingdom to come, they're going to be first. They're going to be first. All right. Three closing quick applications for us. Here's the first one from this point. Love God with all your heart. Love God with all you are. Remember your love for God. Declare your love out loud. Let yourself hear it. Say it out loud. Walk in your love with Jesus. Obey Him daily, even moment by moment. Remember His love for you. Rehearse it in your mind. Number two, identify the work. Identify and work to keep idols at bay. And I had toyed with this, presenting this application like this. Identify and destroy idols in your life. And that's what I believe we ought to do. But if I'm honest, man, idols can come back on you. I don't think there's ever a time where you absolutely defeat an, an idol and you never have to worry about it. Jesus said, if you think you stand, be careful lest you fall, right? So I, I, I think it's better to say identify and work to keep those idols at bay. Keep them out of our life. Let's love Jesus above any idols. You know, we all have proclivities and weaknesses. We have to constantly be vigilant. Destroy them as best you can, but work to keep them out of your life. And by the Spirit of God, you can. By the Spirit of God, you can. Be especially careful. Here's my third one and my last one. Be especially careful to um, be careful of money and riches. I mean, this is, this is a major point here, right? Be careful of money and riches. Mammon. Jesus is, is making the point that riches and money are particularly insidious. They work their way into our lives. And so fight materialism. Resist greed. Resist idols that money facilitates. And here's one way of doing it, I think. Practice extreme generosity. Practice extreme generosity. Give away to the poor much of your excess. Don't put your trust in riches. It's fleeting. Do you realize, do you realize, everyone, listen, that just in, in like this, the economy can crash and all our digital futures are wiped and they're gone. I'm not trying to scare us and I'm not trying to say don't plan for retirement. The Bible says we should do all that. But even while we're saving, Let's be as generous as we can be and trust God, not our bank accounts for the future. Trust God for what he's going to do. So here's how I want to end this morning. I want to end by giving you just a moment. You don't even have to bow your head. You don't have to close your eyes. You can just, you know, just sit there and think. But what is your I will statement from this morning's Two episodes with Jesus. What is the I will statement that you will take away this morning and work on this week? I will what? What will you do in response to this? I will 
And, and, and then fill in an I will for yourself. I will, I will love children and give myself to, to embrace and disciple children in our church family. That might be an I will for you. I will love Jesus above this, this idol in my life. And name the idol in your life. And then say, I will this week, Lord, seek to put to death that idol over and over and over again. Whatever it is. You know, I'm making up saying, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to prime the pump. What is an I will statement for you this morning from the things that I've said? So take a moment and just come up with, I will do this, Lord, in response to what I've heard today. There's no no right or wrong to an I will statement. It's just, what is the Spirit convicting you of? What is He speaking to your heart about? What are you going to do? I'm tired of just listening to the Word of God and not walking away. God, I want to do this this week in response to Your Word. I want to obey You. What is it You want me to do? And I I guess I'm projecting that on all of us. What is your I will statement? So I also want to end this morning by um, inviting you to be a part of Jesus' kingdom. I want to invite you to be a part of His kingdom. And I know I'm, I'm, you guys are in the kingdom. Maybe all of you are in the kingdom. But if you're not in the kingdom, I want to invite you to be a part of His kingdom. Remember, you got to come like a child. And I think that's childlike Dependence. It's, it's not a child trying to earn. It's a child just receiving graciously from the king. So you've got to come just saying, God, be gracious to me. I come to you. Open hands. I have nothing to offer. I come. I want to be a part of your kingdom. So I want to, I want to invite you to be a part of his kingdom this morning. Or, you know, maybe it's more difficult. It's, it's the thing about maybe there's another king, little K, in your life. And you have to, you have to remove that K. You have to remove that little king. You have to say, Jesus, I want you to be king. I want to be a part of your kingdom. So would you would you choose to be a part of Jesus' kingdom today? If you're not, I invite you to that end. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed. <laughs>